Chapter 5 of The Mind and Its Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Mind and Its Education by George Herbert Betts. Chapter 5 Habit. Habit is our best friend or worst enemy. We are walking bundles of habits. Habit is the flywheel of society, keeping men patient and docile in the hard or disagreeable lot which some must fill. Habit is a cable which we cannot break. So say the wise men. Let me know your habits of life, and you have revealed your moral standards and conduct. Let me discover your intellectual habits, and I understand your type of mind and methods of thought. In short, our lives are largely a daily round of activities dictated by our habits in this line or that. Most of our movements and acts are habitual. We think as we have formed the habit of thinking. We decide as we are in the habit of deciding. We sleep or eat or speak as we have grown into the habit of doing these things. We may even say our prayers or perform other religious exercises as matters of habit. But while habit is the veriest tyrant, yet its good offices far exceed the bad even in the most fruitless or depraved life. 1. The Nature of Habit Many people, when they speak or think of habit, give the term a very narrow or limited meaning. They have in mind only certain moral or personal tendencies usually spoken of as one's habits. But in order to understand habit in any thorough and complete way, we must, as suggested by the preceding paragraph, broaden our concept to include every possible line of physical and mental activity. Habit may be defined as the tendency of the nervous system to repeat any action that has been performed once or many times. The Physical Basis of Habit Habit is to be explained from the standpoint of its physical basis. Habits are formed because the tissues of our brains are capable of being modified by use and of so retaining the effects of this modification that the same act is easier of performance each succeeding time. This results in the old act being repeated instead of a new one being selected, and hence the old act is perpetuated. Even dead and inert matter obeys the same principles in this regard as does living matter. Says M. Leon Dumont, quote, Everyone knows how a garment, having been worn a certain time, clings to the shape of the body better than when it was new. There has been a change in the tissue, and this change is a new habit of cohesion. A lock works better after having been used some time. At the outset, more force was required to overcome certain roughness in the mechanism. The overcoming of this resistance is a phenomenon of habituation. It costs less trouble to fold a paper when it has been folded already. This saving of trouble is due to the essential nature of habit, which brings it about that to reproduce the effect, a less amount of the outward cause is required. The sounds of a violin improve by use in the hands of an able artist, because the fibers of the wood at last contract habits of vibration conformed to harmonic relations. This is what gives such inestimable value to instruments that have belonged to great masters. Water in flowing hollows out for itself a channel, which grows broader and deeper, and after having ceased to flow, it resumes when it flows again the path traced for itself before. Just so, the impressions of outer objects fashion for themselves in the nervous system more and more appropriate paths, and these vital phenomena recur under similar excitements from without, when they have been interrupted for a certain time. All Living Tissue Plastic 
What is true of inanimate matter is doubly true of living tissue. The tissues of the human body can be molded into almost any form you choose if taken in time. A child may be placed on his feet at too early an age, and the bones of his legs form the habit of remaining bent. The flathead Indian binds a board on the skull of his child, and its head forms the habit of remaining flat on the top. Wrong bodily postures produce curvature of the spine, and pernicious modes of dress deform the bones of the chest. The muscles may be trained into the habit of keeping the shoulders straight or letting them droop, those of the back to keep the body well up on the hips or to let it sag, those of locomotion to give us a light, springy step or to allow a shuffling carriage, those of speech to give us a clear-cut, accurate articulation or a careless, halting one, and those of the face to give us a cheerful cast of countenance or a glum and morose expression. Habit a modification of brain tissue. But the nervous tissue is the most sensitive and easily molded of all bodily tissues. In fact, it is probable that the real habit of our characteristic walk, gesture, or speech resides in the brain rather than in the muscles which it controls. So delicate is the organization of the brain structure, and so unstable its molecules, that even the perfume of the flower, which assails the nose of a child, the song of a bird, which strikes his ear, or the fleeting dream, which lingers but for a second in his sleep, has so modified his brain that it will never again be as if these things had not been experienced. Every sensory current which runs in from the outside world, every motor current which runs out to command a muscle, every thought that we think, has so modified the nerve structure through which it acts that a tendency remains for a like act to be repeated. Our brain and nervous system is daily being molded into fixed habits of acting by our thoughts and deeds, and thus becomes the automatic register of all we do. The old Chinese fairy story hits upon a fundamental and vital truth. These celestials tell their children that each child is accompanied by day and by night, every moment of his life, by an invisible fairy, who is provided with a pencil and tablet. It is the duty of this fairy to put down every deed of the child, both good and evil, in an indelible record which will one day rise as a witness against him. So it is, in very truth, with our brains. The wrong act may have been performed in secret. No living being may ever know that we performed it, and a merciful providence may forgive it, but the inexorable monitor of our deeds was all the time beside us writing the record, and the history of that act is inscribed forever in the tissues of our brain. It may be repented of bitterly in sackcloth and ashes, and be discontinued, but its effects can never be quite effaced. They will remain with us a handicap till our dying day, and in some critical moment in a great emergency we shall be in danger of defeat from that long past and forgotten act. We must form habits. We must, then, form habits. It is not at all in our power to say whether we will form habits or not. For once started, they go on forming themselves by day and night, steadily and relentlessly. Habit is, therefore, one of the great factors to be reckoned with in our lives, and the question becomes not, shall we form habits, but what habits we shall form. And we have the determining of this question largely in our own power, for habits do not just happen, nor do they come to us ready-made. We ourselves make them from day to day, through the acts we perform, and in so far as we have control over our acts, in that far we can determine our habits. 2. The place of habit in the economy of our lives. Habit is one of nature's methods of economizing time and effort, while at the same time securing greater skill and efficiency. 
This is easily seen when it is remembered that habit tends towards automatic action, that is, towards action governed by the lower nerve centers and taking care of itself, so to speak, without the interference of consciousness. Everyone has observed how much easier in the performance and more skillful in its execution is the act, be it playing a piano, painting a picture, or driving a nail, when the movements involved have ceased to be consciously directed and become automatic. Habit increases skill and efficiency. Practically all increase in skill, whether physical or mental, depends on our ability to form habits. Habit holds fast to the skill already attained, while practice or intelligence makes ready for the next step in advance. Could we not form habits, we should improve but little in our way of doing things, no matter how many times we did them over. We should now be obliged to go through the same bungling process of dressing ourselves as when we first learned it as children. Our writing would proceed as awkwardly in the high school as the primary. Our eating as adults would be as messy and wide of the mark as when we were infants. And we should miss in a thousand ways the motor skill that now seems so easy and natural. All highly skilled occupations, and those demanding great manual dexterity, likewise depend on our habit-forming power for the accurate and automatic movements required. So with mental skill. A great portion of the fundamentals of our education must be made automatic, must become matters of habit. We set out to learn the symbols of speech. We hear words and see them on the printed page. Associated with these words are meanings or ideas. Habit binds the word and the idea together, so that to think of the one is to call up the other, and language is learned. We must learn numbers. So we practice the combinations, and with four times six, or three times eight, we associate twenty-four. Habit secures this association in our minds, and lo, we soon know our tables. And so on, throughout the whole range of our learning. We learn certain symbols, or facts, or processes, and habit takes hold and renders these automatic, so that we can use them freely, easily, and with skill, leaving our thought free for matters that cannot be made automatic. One of our greatest dangers is that we shall not make sufficiently automatic enough of the necessary foundation material of education. Failing in this, we shall at best be but blunderers intellectually, handicapped because we failed to make proper use of habit in our development. For, as we have seen in an earlier chapter, there is a limit to our mental energy and also to the number of objects to which we are able to attend. It is only when attention has been freed from the many things that can always be thought or done in the same way that the mind can devote itself to the real problems that require judgment, imagination, or reasoning. The writer whose spelling and punctuation do not take care of themselves will hardly make a success of writing. The mathematician whose number combinations, processes, and formulae are not automatic in his mind can never hope to make progress in mathematical thinking. The speaker who, while speaking, has to think of his gestures, his voice, or his enunciation, will never sway audiences by his logic or his eloquence. Habit saves effort and fatigue. We do most easily and with least fatigue that which we are accustomed to do. It is the new act or the strange task that tires us. The horse that is used to the farm wearies if put on the road, while the roadster tires easily when hitched to the plow. The experienced penman works all day at his desk without undue fatigue, while the man more accustomed to the pick and the shovel than to the pen is exhausted by a half hour's writing at a letter. Those who follow a sedentary and inactive occupation do not tire by much sitting, 
while children or others used to freedom and action may find it a wearisome task merely to remain still for an hour or two not only would the skill and speed demanded by modern industry be impossible without the aid of habit but without its help none could stand the fatigue and strain the new workman placed at a high-speed machine is ready to fall from weariness at the end of his first day but little by little he learns to omit the unnecessary movements the necessary movements become easier and more automatic through habit and he finds the work easier we may conclude then that not only do consciously directed movements show less skill than the same movements made automatic by habit but they also require more effort and produce greater fatigue habit economizes moral effort to have to decide each time the question comes up whether we will attend to this lecture or sermon or lesson whether we will persevere and go through this piece of disagreeable work which we have begun whether we will go to the trouble of being courteous and kind to this or that poor or unlovely or dirty fellow-mortal whether we will take this road because it looks easy or that one because we know it to be the one we ought to take whether we will be strictly fair and honest when we might just as well be the opposite whether we will resist the temptation which dares us whether we will do this duty hard though it is which confronts us to have to decide each of these questions every time it presents itself is to put too large a proportion of our thought and energy on things which should take care of themselves for all these things should early become so nearly habitual that they can be settled with the very minimum of expenditure of energy when they arise the habit of attention it is a noble thing to be able to attend by sheer force of will when the interest lags or some more attractive thing appears but far better is it so to have formed the habit of attention that we naturally fall into that attitude when this is the desirable thing to understand what i mean you only have to look over a class or an audience and note the different ways which people have of finally settling down to listening some with an attitude which says now here i am ready to listen to you if you will interest me otherwise not others with a manner that says i did not really come here expecting to listen and you will have a large task if you interest me i never listen unless i am compelled to and the responsibility rests on you others plainly say i really mean to listen but i have hard work to control my thoughts and if i wander i shall not blame you altogether it is just my way and still others say when i am expected to listen i always listen whether there is anything much to listen to or not i have formed that habit and so have no quarrel with myself about it you can depend on me to be attentive for i cannot afford to weaken my habit of attention whether you do well or not every speaker will clasp these last listeners to his heart and feed them on the choicest thoughts of his soul they are the ones to whom he speaks and to whom his address will appeal habit enables us to meet the disagreeable to be able to persevere in the face of difficulties and hardships and carry through the disagreeable thing in spite of the protests of our natures against the sacrifice which it requires is a creditable thing but it is more creditable to have so formed the habit of perseverance that the disagreeable duty shall be done without a struggle or protest or question horace mann testifies of himself that whatever success he was able to attain was made possible through the early habit which he formed of never stopping to inquire whether he liked to do a thing which needed doing but of doing everything equally well and without question both the pleasant and the unpleasant the youth who can fight out a moral battle and win against the allurements of some attractive temptation is worthy the highest honor and praise 
but so long as he has to fight the same battle over and over again he is on dangerous ground morally for good morals must finally become habits so ingrained in us that the right decision comes largely without effort and without struggle otherwise the strain is too great and defeat will occasionally come and defeat means weakness and at last disaster after the spirit has tired of the constant conflict and so on in a hundred lines good habits are more to be coveted than individual victories in special cases much as these are to be desired for good habits mean victories all along the line habit the foundation of personality the biologist tells us that it is the constant and not the occasional in the environment that impresses itself on an organism so also it is the habitual in our lives that builds itself into our character and personality in a very real sense, we are what we are in the habit of doing and thinking. Without habit, personality could not exist, for we could never do a thing twice alike, and hence would be a new person each succeeding moment. The acts which give us our own peculiar individuality are our habitual acts, the little things that do themselves moment by moment without care or attention, and are the truest and best expression of our real selves probably no one of us could be very sure which arm he puts into the sleeve or which foot he puts into the shoe first and yet each of us certainly formed the habit long ago of doing these things in a certain way we might not be able to describe just how we hold the knife and fork and spoon and yet each has his own characteristic and habitual way of handling them we sit down and get up in some characteristic way and the very poise of our heads and attitudes of our bodies are the result of that we get sleepy and wake up, become hungry and thirsty at certain hours, through force of habit. We form the habit of liking a certain chair, or nook, or corner, or path, or desk, and then seek this to the exclusion of all others. We habitually use a particular pitch of voice and type of enunciation in speaking, and this becomes one of our characteristic marks. Or we form the habit of using barbarisms or solecisms of language in youth, and these cling to us and become an inseparable part of us later in life. On the mental side, the case is no different. Our thinking is as characteristic as our physical acts. We may form the habit of thinking things out logically or of jumping to conclusions, of thinking critically and independently, or of taking things unquestioningly on the authority of others. We may form the habit of carefully reading good, sensible books, or of skimming sentimental and trashy ones of choosing elevating ennobling companions or the opposite of being a good conversationalist and doing our part in a social group or of being a drag on the conversation and needing to be entertained we may form the habit of observing the things about us and enjoying the beautiful in our environment or of failing to observe or to enjoy we may form the habit of obeying the voice of conscience or of weakly yielding to temptation without a struggle of taking a reverent attitude of prayer in our devotions, or of merely saying our prayers. Habit saves worry and rebellion. Habit has been called the balance wheel of society. This is because men readily become habituated to the hard, the disagreeable, or the inevitable, and cease to battle against it. A lot that at first seems unendurable after a time causes less revolt. A sorrow that seems too poignant to be borne in the course of time loses some of its sharpness. Oppression or injustice that arouses the fiercest resentment and hate may finally come to be accepted with resignation. Habit helps us learn that what cannot be cured must be endured. 3. The Tyranny of Habit 
Even good habits need to be modified. But even in good habits there is danger. Habit is the opposite of attention. Habit relieves attention of unnecessary strain. Every habitual act was at one time, either in the history of the race or of the individual, a voluntary act. That is, it was performed under active attention. As the habit grew, attention was gradually rendered unnecessary, until finally it dropped entirely out. And herein lies the danger. Habit, once formed, has no way of being modified unless in some way attention is called to it. For a habit left to itself becomes more and more firmly fixed. The rut grows deeper. In very few, if any of our actions, can we afford to have this the case. Our habits need to be progressive. They need to grow, to be modified, to be improved. Otherwise, they will become an encrusting shell, fixed and unyielding, which will limit our growth. It is necessary, then, to keep our habitual acts under some surveillance of attention, to pass them in review for inspection every now and then, that we may discover possible modifications which will make them more serviceable. We need to be inventive, constantly to find out better ways of doing things. Habit takes care of our standing, walking, and sitting. But how many of us could not improve his poise and carriage if he would? Our speech has become largely automatic, but no doubt all of us might remove faults of enunciation, pronunciation, or stress from our speaking. So also we might better our habits of study and thinking, our methods of memorizing, or our manner of attending. The Tendency of Ruts but this will require something of heroism, for to follow the well-beaten path of custom is easy and pleasant, while to break out of the rut of habit and start a new line of action is difficult and disturbing. Most people prefer to keep doing things as they always have done them, to continue reading and thinking and believing as they have long been in the habit of doing, not so much because they feel that their way is best, but because it is easier than to change. Hence, the great mass of us settle down on the plane of mediocrity and become old fogey. We learn to do things passably well, cease to think about improving our ways of doing them, and so fall into a rut. Only the few go on. They make use of habit as the rest do, but they also continue to attend at critical points of action, and so make habit an ally in place of accepting it as a tyrant. 4. Habit Forming a Part of Education it follows from the importance of habit in our lives that no small part of education should be concerned with the development of serviceable habits. Says James, quote, Could the young but realize how soon they will become mere walking bundles of habits, they would give more heed to their conduct while in the plastic state. We are spinning our own fates, good or evil, and never to be undone. Every smallest stroke of virtue or of vice leaves its never so little scar. End of quote. Any youth who is forming a large number of useful habits is receiving no mean education, no matter if his knowledge of books may be limited. On the other hand, no one who is forming a large number of bad habits is being well-educated, no matter how brilliant his knowledge may be. Youth, the time for habit-forming. Childhood and youth is the great time for habit-forming. Then the brain is plastic and easily molded, and it retains its impressions more indelibly. Later it is hard to modify, and the impressions made are less permanent. It is hard to teach an old dog new tricks, nor would he remember them if you could teach them to him, nor be able to perform them well even if he could remember them. The young child will, within the first few weeks of its life, form habits of sleeping and feeding. It may in a few days be led into the habit of sleeping in the dark, or requiring a light, of going to sleep lying quietly, 
or of insisting upon being rocked, of getting hungry by the clock, or of wanting its food at all times when it finds nothing else to do, and so on. It is wholly outside the power of the mother or the nurse to determine whether the child shall form habits, but largely within their power to say what habits shall be formed, since they control his acts. As the child grows older, the range of his habits increases, and by the time he has reached his middle teens, the greater number of his personal habits are formed. It is very doubtful whether a boy who has not formed habits of punctuality before the age of fifteen will ever be entirely trustworthy in matters requiring precision in this line. The girl who has not, before this age, formed habits of neatness and order, will hardly make a tidy housekeeper later in her life. Those who in youth have no opportunity to habituate themselves to the usages of society may study books on etiquette and employ private instructors in the art of polite behavior all they please later in life, but they will never cease to be awkward and ill at ease. None are at a greater disadvantage than the suddenly grown rich who attempt late in life to surround themselves with articles of art and luxury, though their habits were all formed amid barrenness and want during their earlier years. THE HABIT OF ACHIEVEMENT what youth does not dream of being great or noble or a celebrated scholar? And how few there are who finally achieve their ideals? Where does the cause of failure lie? Surely not in the lack of high ideals. Multitudes of young people have excelsior as their motto, and yet never get started up the mountain slope, let alone toiling on to its top. They've put in hours dreaming of the glory farther up, and have never begun to climb. The difficulty comes in not realizing that the only way to become what we wish or dream that we may become is to form the habit of being that thing, to form the habit of achievement, of effort, of self-sacrifice if need be, to form the habit of deeds along with dreams, to form the habit of doing. Who of us has not at this moment lying in wait for his convenience in the dim future a number of things which he means to do just as soon as this term of school is finished? or this job of work is completed, or when he is not so busy as now. And how seldom does he ever get at those things at all? Darwin tells that in his youth he loved poetry, art, and music, but was so busy with his scientific work that he could ill spare the time to indulge these tastes. So he promised himself that he would devote his time to scientific work and make his mark in this. Then he would have time for the things that he loved, and would cultivate his taste for the fine arts. He made his mark in the field of science, and then turned again to poetry, to music, to art. But alas, they were all dead and dry bones to him, without life or interest. He had passed the time when he could ever form the taste for them. He had formed his habits in another direction, and now it was forever too late to form new habits. His own conclusion is that if he had his life to live over again, he would each week listen to some musical concert and visit some art gallery, and that each day he would read some poetry, and thereby keep alive and active the love for them. So every school and home should be a species of habit factory, a place where children develop habits of neatness, punctuality, obedience, politeness, dependability, and the other graces of character. 5. Rules for Habit Forming James's Three Maxims for Habit Forming On the forming of new habits and the leaving off of old ones, I know of no better statement than that of James, based on Bain's chapter on moral habits. I quote this statement at some length. Quote, In the acquisition of a new habit, or the leaving off of an old one, 
we must take care to launch ourselves with as strong and decided an initiative as possible accumulate all the possible circumstances which shall reinforce right motives put yourself assiduously in conditions that encourage the new way make engagements incompatible with the old take a public pledge if the case allows in short develop your resolution with every aid you know this will give your new beginning such a momentum that the temptation to break down will not occur as soon as it otherwise might and every day during which a breakdown is postponed adds to the chances of its not occurring at all the second maxim is never suffer an exception to occur until the new habit is securely rooted in your life each lapse is like letting fall a ball of string which one is carefully winding up a single slip undoes more than a great many turns will wind again continuity of training is the great means of making the nervous system act infallibly right the need of securing success nerves one to future vigor a third maxim may be added to the preceding pair seize the very first possible opportunity to act on every resolution you make and on every emotional prompting you may experience in the direction of the habits you aspire to gain it is not in the moment of their forming but in the moment of their producing motor effects that resolves and aspirations communicate the new set to the brain End of quote. the preponderance of good habits over bad and finally let no one be disturbed or afraid because in a little time you become a walking bundle of habits for in so far as your good actions predominate over your bad ones that much will your good habits outweigh your bad habits silently moment by moment efficiency is growing out of all worthy acts will be done every bit of heroic self-sacrifice every battle fought and won every good deed performed is being eradicably credited to you in your nervous system and will finally add its might toward achieving the success of your ambitions six problems in observation and introspection one select some act which you have recently begun to perform and watch it grow more and more habitual notice carefully for a week and see whether you do not discover some habits which you did not know you had make a catalogue of your bad habits of the most important of your good ones two set out to form some new habits which you desire to possess also to break some undesirable habit watching carefully what takes place in both cases and how long it requires three try the following experiment and relate the results to the matter of automatic control brought about by habit draw a star on a sheet of cardboard place this on a table before you with a hand mirror so arranged that you can see the star in the mirror now trace the outline of the star with a pencil looking steadily in the mirror to guide your hand do not lift the pencil from the paper from the time you start until you finish have others try this experiment four study some group of pupils for their habits one of attention two of speech three of standing sitting and walking four of study report on your observations and suggest methods of curing bad habits observed five make a list of mannerisms you have observed and suggest how they may be cured six make a list of from ten to twenty habits which you think the school and its work should especially cultivate what ones of these are the schools you know least successful in cultivating where does the trouble lie end of chapter five recording by colleen mcmahon